Listening Dog Media. Rocket with Kieran Bracken and Nick Easter. The Rugby Podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously. Welcome to Rocket with me, Kieran Bracken and Nick Easter. And today we're joined by the legendary Irish captain, Rory Beck. Rocket with Kieran Bracken and Nick Easter. How are you, Rory? Good morning over there. Good morning. How are are you? you? uh, How have you been managing lockdown, mate? Like like everyone else, I suppose. Yeah, sort of doing a bit of farming, really, but um, sort of trying to trying to make the weekends a bit different to the rest of the week. So they are, which is definitely harder. You couldn't have timed everything more perfectly, really, with retiring from rugby and then all of this happening, and then you're out on your farm, which is probably where you feel you're probably your most happiest, eh? I mean, great timing for you. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, when you take away the fact that it's a global pandemic and, and all the seriousness of that, it has actually been, I look at the guys now, they're potentially retiring and you know, are they going to get extensions or they're not going to get extensions? Yeah. Are they going to get another game before they retire? Um, it's a big break to have when you're getting towards the end of your career to have this sort of extended break. Um, and for me then to, to have retired got the sort of fanfare that I that I got and then the this time now to spend with the kids to spend the wow. farm. Brilliant. Nah, that's excellent, mate. What's um what what have you been doing with yourself a lot? Obviously we know in lockdown and everything, but what what have, what have been your plans? Have you started anything sort of post career? Um you sort of seen how it goes and, and unwinding a little bit He's just told you Nick he's a farmer now, he's a he's a tillage <laughs> farmer, beef farmer in Ireland. Oh, mate. He, he'll always dip he'll always dip in and out of that just for a bit of training. <laughs> yeah. I think that that was it was kind of relaxed. I was trying to relax my mind a little bit. We had bits and pieces of uh, ambassador roles that I had to do, um and you know, obviously some of the games. But that kind of plan, the plan was really to take it to the end of the season and sort of do all that sort of stuff and, and see what what I liked of that aspect and then to get a few other things going. But that kind of, um, I suppose, in mid-March was derailed a little bit. So mm-hmm. I've, I have been connecting a bit more with the farm and getting it to where I want it. But um, I think if I can definitely, those sort of leadership talks and uh, that kind of thing and a wee bit of punditry, I, I will certainly to the end of whatever this season looks like and finishes, which mightn't be till, I know you guys maybe know better than I do, but maybe September, um, maybe even later, um, and then be in a bit of a better position. But it was just, it was so surreal to be stopped dead yeah, like that. And then sort of, like this was the plans and the hardest thing to do is get plans together and then sort of have to, has to change and move, but you know everyone's doing the same. Yeah, mate, it's uh, it, it is a, it's a strange scenario, isn't it? And people are trying to do their best to adjust, aren't they? And you know, you would have read a lot about it, and we 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 covered it today on the podcast. Regards, you know, the sort of salary issues, and uh, you know, I've been reading as well in Ireland that the um, you know the Irish Rugby Players Union they're not happy with the twenty percent cuts that have been discussed um, with the four provinces. Uh, it just seems it seems a little bit the same here with Premiership Rugby and and the Players Union. I don't seem to understand if it happens to be the case. It's how it's been reported, so I suppose we've got to take it that why there hasn't been transparency or a conversation about the predicament that they're finding themselves in and how they can come to some middle ground and why sort of clubs or provinces would decide right this is what we're going to do. 
you know, like it or lump it sort of thing. But, you know, you've obviously got your ear to the ground. Um, you know, you're well in with Ulster still. Um, you know, how's that sort of gone down in Ireland, you know, amongst the players and also amongst, uh, obviously, the provinces? I think that that, probably your first point is the real is the crux of why there are so many issues in, in rugby. You know, there's no transparency, there's no conversation. It's almost a, a conversation happens on, on committee level, and then it goes, right, this is what we're doing. And I think that, especially when you're a young man in a professional organisation, the one thing that you hate being is being told, this is what we're doing. And there'd be no no consideration to what the players think. And I think from a, you know, it's not the amateur era anymore. And I think there's got to be more consideration. There's a, almost a fear of bringing players or very recently retired players into committees, into these conversations. The players' unions are getting stronger, but I don't see why that fear factor is there. You know, they say stuff like, oh, you know, there'd be stuff discussed that, that they shouldn't be privy to. But, look, ultimately, I think if you want the game to grow and get forward, I think like one of the biggest examples was the that league that World Rugby tried to force through yeah. over a year ago. And, and actually, the concept of that league wasn't that bad. It was just there was bits of player welfare that wasn't given enough weighting versus the, the revenue that the television were going to bring in. And, and this salary cut now seems to me something similar. And... I know in Ireland it started as a pay deferral, but I suppose when it wasn't me getting paid, I kind of always had a feeling that it would probably have to end up in a pay cut somewhere. And that's the conversation needs to have to go, look, guys, we need a bit of help here. We know it's, we agreed a contract, but ultimately, if we need the game to survive and professional rugby keep going with the amount of money we're losing, and, and all you hear is a player's a speculation of the RFU or the RFU or the clubs are losing X amount per month, but it's speculation that you read, and I don't think I don't think there'd be anything wrong with actually getting the players or the key players to spread the message in a room. Go look, here's the actual reality of what's going on, and, and you don't need to you don't need to scare among you don't need to build it up. Just say, look, this is what's going on. This is why we need. Hopefully, we get rugby back on its feet and contracts go up again, and you'll get it back in the long run for the younger guys. But um, I, I just honestly don't see how rugby can keep going if there's not some sort of pay reduction, but it's the way it's been implemented is probably the biggest, the bigger yeah. issue. Rory, if you don't mind, I just want to um, sort of review your fantastic career. I mean, to get over 100 caps is something else, but 124 caps and uh, spanning a long period and having so much successes. I just want to talk about uh, the, the recent sort of the World Cup and perhaps maybe some answers as to why Ireland seemed to peak before or after World Cup. So just going to the the, the, the World Cup just recently, um, I hope it hasn't given you any nightmares necessarily, but with the game against uh, New Zealand and, and what it's been like for you, you know, you've done, I think, four World Cups, which is fantastic. You've had some great successes, but, you know, last year, 2019 World Cup, well, what were your memories of it and the highs and lows? Um, I think probably the, the one that gives you the nightmare is the Japan game. Oh, yeah. Fair play to them, you know, they played brilliant on the day, but we still have still should have had enough about us to win that game, regardless of, of where we were, because we kind of the I suppose the momentum got well and truly stalled out against England at the start of that Six Nations. And yeah. then we just yeah. felt the pressure on top of us. And um we probably after the after the other hammering by England in the summer, we probably got a little bit of, of our former momentum with two games against Wales. 
which albeit were uh, World Cup warm-ups, but we still played. We won those. We played well. We actually probably had one of our better performances um, in a long time against Scotland in the opening game when everyone was you know, going, oh, Ireland, don't start competitions well. If this happens, they're in big trouble. And we probably a little, I suppose, a breath and thought, yeah, we've got it back now. And, and Japan caught us. And like I say, we still had chances and, and should have been good enough to win that game. Um, and I think there's almost a bit of, you wonder now it could be kind of wanted so badly and that that was all we were fixated on was winning it and with myself and Joe both finishing after the World Cup, sometimes when you focus so hard on an end point and you know mm-hmm. for us it's a definite end point that you know the, the actual development and worrying about how you grow as a team beyond that um, comes second to wanting this big goal and um, maybe in hindsight that, that's something that happened that you know, we, we stopped trying to grow as a group and went, yeah, the end of 18, we went to a really good place. 12 months' time, if we're in the same place, we'll be very much in the mix. And um, I think we definitely, we kept trying to to improve as a team and, and we were definitely trying to improve as, we, as a coaching team and the way we were coached. But ultimately, you know, did we go the product we have right now is doing us really well and we don't need to worry about the 2026 20, nations we just need to worry about the 2019 world cup yeah, yeah. um it's hard really to know but there's no doubt that even you know now everything's about memories because there's no there's not very much live sport going on and there was a flashback to ireland beating japan on that tour in 2017 with all these kids making their debut and that flashed up and it was a very similar Japanese team and that was another one I just sort of shook my head and went like how did we lose that because ultimately I know South Africa won it but you really would rather not play the All Blacks in a quarterfinal of a World Cup especially when you have history you saw what they did to France in 15 off the back of history and as soon as people start to go oh well Ireland have beaten them and you know this is this this could be the time that's when they up their game and um they like so. it. They do. They do like a bit of payback at World Cups, don't they? Ninety-five, yeah. Kieran. You beat them in ninety-three. Yeah, don't, don't they, remember. They, they, yeah, yeah. They smashed but, uh, us. We beat them ninety-three. Killed us. But South Africa, yeah. Rassi, Rassi, clearly, obviously, with his experience, you know, especially in Ireland with Munster as well for the sort of year and a half he was there, he's got a lot of respect for Irish rugby. And and Ireland, out of all the home nations, probably had the best record against South Africa, sort of certainly in the last ten years. He, he was really concerned about that quarterfinal. Um, he, he said, hasn't he? He said before, he said that was the game he was looking at more than the New Zealand group game, where you know he knew that win or lose, they would qualify. And he was looking at both options of whether they won the group or came second. And after that, losing that New Zealand game, that was where his focus was. To, so, so suddenly it changed from his point of view. But he had, he had a lot of respect for you guys. Yeah, and actually the way they play probably suits the way we play. I think we play reasonably similar. You know, when you get a chance to go, you go. But ultimately, it's about making sure your basics, your set piece, you're good under the high ball, that you kick smart, you kick at the right time. Um, and that's where we sort of feel in an arm wrestle that, that we could compete with anyone. Whereas the likes of playing New Zealand and, and now England is that if you don't get control of the game, that it can very quickly get away from you. And that's what both those teams especially have the ability to do. And that's why that quarterfinal was, was the New Zealand side was so tough for us because they just got a start and they got momentum. And someone like South Africa, you can, you do sometimes a chance to rest momentum back. Even in the final, England had a shocking start 
and there was a bit of a middle ground in that game where they nearly had an opportunity to seize control back again because South Africa sometimes allow you to do that and England couldn't quite manage it and then off South Africa went with those, the way they finished but yeah there's no doubt that the way we play and because we're used to playing them um, you know, there probably isn't the same fear factor with South Africa there is for New Zealand with Ireland because like ultimately we've beaten New Zealand twice in what 115, 16 maybe 18 years, whatever it is. It's not a fantastic record we have. Yeah. I particularly enjoyed um, uh, your book. And, and and in the book, I mean, I know there's a lot of publicity about it, where I suppose unfairly the, they, they picked out little bits from that book that criticised Joe Smith. But but when I when I sort of uh, sort of listened to the, the interviews, your interviews and, 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 and the sort of context that it was said, you know, I've, I've noticed, and for those of you, you know, our listeners, where you said you felt that you were overcoached to some extent and, you know, the, the senior players should have done more. But we've been there, Nick has been there, I've been there, where you want to win so much and sometimes you just lose sight of, of actually, I mean, certainly in the World Cup 2003, at one stage, you know, we had four or five coaches all wanting a session. Martin Johnson just literally said, that's enough. We're not we're having any more coaching from any of you the last two days is ours. So it's interesting you talk about that because I see that all the time, you know, with club rugby and international rugby. It's hard to get the right mix, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that, that was that was sort of the comment that, you know, in hindsight that really I should have certainly as a senior player group group, we should have been on top of that to go, yeah, look, we don't need this. And I suppose we did to an extent in the summer after the England game, we said, look, we need this space. And and my point with Joe was that, you know, he's so across everything that firstly, you know, just if he says you need to do it, a lot of time you just go, yeah, look, well, this guy knows his stuff. We trust him implicitly, so we'll do it. Um, but also if you are organised, and so after the England game in the summer, we said, look, that last captain's run through. We don't want anyone on the pitch. We don't want any meetings. It's over to us. And, and we did that by and large. And just, I suppose, on a Sunday night, I said, look, this is what we're thinking of doing. Captain's run, it may change a little bit depending on what has, you know, how training has went. But by and large, you know, we think we're in a good place or we might need to do a bit more. Um, and probably that sort of eased back a little bit. I sort of stopped being maybe as organized because it sort of went, right, we're in their routine now. And when you don't, when you don't have something to a coach like Joe, who's so organised, he goes right. Well, look, these boys maybe aren't aren't fully prepared. Maybe it's time that, or I want a little word here, or a little word there, and that and that's mm. just what happened. And it again, it was me reflecting hindsight that you know if I had been more organised, potentially, who knows? You know, you're, you're trying to pick a hole in yeah. something. Why? Why did this happen? And, by and large it happened because New Zealand are a great team they got momentum and, and we got when you look at the mistakes we made at the start of that game you know that wasn't down to a meeting in the morning of the game you're trying to pick you're trying to pick holes to go right well look I'll not get another chance at a World Cup but Ireland will and how as an Irish rugby supporter can we make sure that they get the semi-final because it's now become a massive monkey on our back yeah, I was, I was literally going to follow up with that, Rory. Uh, now, I've been quite critical of, oh, sorry, I, I've got my views on, you know, we've spoken on this podcast before and why people are saying, well, Ireland do so well, you know, you won Six Nations, 14, 15, Grand Slam, 18, um, you know, Ireland, England, the last 10 years been the most successful Northern Hemisphere sides uh, most of the time. But perennially, 
you know, quarter-finalists at World Cups. And why is it? And you do well in Europe, good representation. You know, Leinster, Munster, you guys won it in 99, won the Heineken Cup, or sorry, the Champions Cup now as it is. I, I have a belief that part of the issue, and you can shoot me down here, feel completely free, Rory. You know, our birthdays are on the same day, by the way. So you can, no, no. You can absolutely hammer me. But um, I have a view that the system in terms of looking after players, keeping them fresh in Ireland, in terms of the sort of te- uh, the, uh, the, uh, the union being able to tell you which games you can play um, in the Pro 14, which games you can't, holding you back for big European games, holding you back for when you come to Autumn Internationals of Six Nations. And the Six Nations also being broken up with those two fallow weeks. So you're able to regroup, reset. Suits the Irish players. You've become conditioned to it, institutionalised to it. You know exactly how to get that emotional edge. Also the preparation and obviously physically look after yourself and peak at that time. In the Premiership and the top 14, you know, it's very, it's, they're attritional leagues, not saying the Pro 14 is not, but it's attritional leagues where you are wheeled out. If you're able to walk, you are wheeled out because the clubs run the game and they pay your wages every single week. So you might not be at your peak for sort of two, three weeks, but you've got to sort of dig deep to find a way to win or find a way to perform or whatever it might be. And when you get to a World Cup, and I know you get a few, you know, easy games in the group stages, but ultimately you have to be able to win three big games on the bounce minimum to, to win it um is is that a contributing factor or do you think i'm talking absolute rubbish and it's purely the pre- the expectation the pressure that might come onto it or do you that's think the longest a question that? that's the longest questions we've had on the podcast by the way nick uh, <laughs> i had to get it i had to get off oh, my chest jesus, mate jesus wow it's come on I think it's been keeping you awake for a long time. Oh, brilliant. Um, look, I don't think that's something I'd ever given any thought to, but like, there is no doubt there is... I, it's hard to, to argue with some of the points made there because ultimately everyone's trying to find a reason. And, and with the World Cups I've done, I remember after 07, which we didn't get out of the group, it was a complete disaster. And the theory was never again are we going to focus on a World Cup for so far out. You know, everything was about the World Cup. We didn't tour, 15 players didn't tour that summer because of a bit being ready. The Six Nations before that was a wee bit out. Two, two out from that was like, right, in the autumn in the Six Nations, we need to start to find players. And they said, well, we bombed out of that, so we're not going to go. Before that, it was about focusing on a World Cup. Um, and, you know, we sort of tried everything and nothing's worked. And I think there probably is a bit of an element of that. You know, we do... We are comfortable whenever we have to play a game, knowing that some stage is a break. And you say maybe in a World Cup there isn't. Um, and there is a little bit of the, the preparation, the pre-season. We seem to find it a little bit different because although the RFU have all the control, and from a strength and conditioning point of view, there isn't actually as much overlap as you'd think. And you come in and you're used to doing your your pre-season program in a province next thing you're brought into a camp and it is a little bit different and like you say ultimately we're not that comfortable doing things differently and I'm as guilty as anyone and, and maybe there is a bit of that I always felt that there probably needed to be a bit more alignment in terms of because we have the ability to do it in terms of, of what our strength conditioning program looks like um, but yeah look I, I think there's, there's definitely something in that um, I think Pure from a Northern Hemisphere point of view, you know, we've only had one World Cup win from a Northern Hemisphere in, what has there been, 10, 11 World Cups, maybe it's, maybe not as much as that. And I do think there is something around the timing of it. I think it is very, 
it is very different having to go finish a season, get a bit of a break, and then rebuild. So you're using the first four or five weeks of that break to actually get yourself conditioned. Then you're doing the World Cup warm-ups, and they are a bit of a, you know, they're a bit hit and miss, you know, because there's people are just trying to find a bit of form. People are trying to get themselves into selection. Everyone has really had their own agenda in that. It's not like a proper international. And then you're thrown into a World Cup. Um, whereas when we play our, when we go November or Six Nations, you know, you've played a bit of rugby and you're ready to go. And um, whereas the Southern Hemisphere, the opposite, they're sort of a slightly reduced, condensed season, and then they're ready to go. So when they meet up in camp, they can just concentrate fully on the rugby because they are by and large conditioned. Um, but I think that probably any and all answers as to why Ireland have struggled at World Cups are very welcome. And I think that that's, it's hard to argue with that theory. I think it's, it's great in terms of the longevity of careers, um, but in terms of your point, Nick, but also the fact that because we're so well looked after, there's not a lot of fluctuation in, in our starting team. Kind of, mm. We almost feel like we don't have an infinite number of international players, so we need to look after them. Um, and that, like, that's why Ireland and New Zealand especially have more internationals than, than anyone else, I think, because that system geared up to go, we need to protect our assets because we don't have very many of them. If you, do you mind me asking, uh, you've had such a long career, so what, what would be your most favourite uh, part of your career moments and, and, and in particular, favourite wins against, against the old enemy, England? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think the Grand Slam in, in 18, obviously, was we had stopped the Grand Slam the year before. There was all this talk of payback and we'd, we'd actually been playing. We got we were a little bit patchy at the start of that against France and we got away with it with a win through unbelievable, an unbelievable team try, but a bit of skill at the end from Johnny Sexton. And then yeah. for us to still, under all the pressure, in Twickenham, which is a very difficult place to go and, and win, as I think some of our boys have now found out twice, and but to go there and actually play our best before like that was our best performance of the entire championship yeah. was was very pleasing and the, on, think, on St Paddy's weekend mate and the yeah. Keltman races as well I think was yeah. just that Friday yeah it was a big it was a big Irish week all around that one I think and you know then to, and obviously to lift the Grand Slam you know it's, I've been lucky enough to do it twice Ireland have only ever done it three times in, in their history so to do to do that in Twickenham with a performance like that was incredible there's the two New Zealand games and um, it's funny like the World Cup in 11 was for me sort of one of the one of the greatest um, periods in, in my career in Ireland just we were playing well up until the Wales game in the quarterfinal we were playing well New Zealand going there in June I was dreading going to this World Cup because going to New Zealand in June it's like it's like being in, in Ireland or England or the UK in November 10 years ago it's, you know it's just like it's just not that pleasant and yeah <laughs> the crap kicked out of you <laughs> this World Cup is going to be miserable and actually going there in September October was Really, really good. Um, it was get, every day was getting slightly warmer rather than slightly colder and wetter, and I, I just really enjoyed that. I suppose I was probably in my late twenties, so it was, you know it's a good time to be playing. You didn't have very many responsibilities outside of playing rugby, and you couldn't. You weren't the captain. You were kind of a senior player, but it wasn't really like that then. So you just go and play and enjoy it. And when we arrived, we had a we had a couple of we trained really hard and said right when we arrive we're going to have a couple of nights out when we first arrive to get 
obviously acclimatised and uh, just has a really good feeling about it. Mate, I'm going to ask you a question about that New Zealand World Cup because I was there and we got pilloried and hammered in the press. And one of the things we got hammered for, outside of Dwarf Throne, obviously, was the, uh, the bungee jumping we did. And I spoke to a few of your lads and they tell me that you, you guys were all out bungee jumping, probably a few with no clothes on as well. Not a whisper, not a whisper with the media at all whatsoever. Is it just like the Irish charm that you manage? Okay, you know, you befriend the media, not a bad word. We'll give you a little bit of info here or we'll let you inside, into our camp. But uh, I remember a few of us felt hard done by this. Oh, well, the Irish were doing their bungee jumps naked. And, uh, you know, we just did it. There's about seven of us went and did a bungee jump. That was it. And, uh, you know, it's all over the papers here and it got blamed for us getting bombed out and all that sort of stuff. But uh, it was good fun. Queenstown's a good, t- yeah. good place, isn't it? it was brilliant. And, you know, there was a bit, but we did feel very sorry for you guys now the way you got hammered. We oh, thanks, of- mate. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah bar the actual that's, throwing. That's softened that whole experience. Yeah, but I did, I did, um, there was a bit of a theory amongst us that if we hadn't have beaten Australia, that they were geared up and ready to go yeah. come at us. Because we didn't play that well against the US in our first game. And it was almost like, right, we need a big moment in time and lose to Australia. It's going to be because they were bungee jumping. It's going to be because they were doing X, Y, and Z. Um, but we thankfully produced one of our best performances that day. And it was kind of just, right, well, let's focus on the rugby, which um, I'm not sure we necessarily have. I think probably earlier in my career, the media were a wee bit more, yeah, look, the only professional sport. Um, the big team, you know, let's get behind them. Whereas certainly more recently, it has been a little bit more. Um, I felt in, at the start of 19, there was almost a, an expectation to see that they wanted failure. You know, the pressure really came on because, you know, they can't be this good. It's not, you know, it's not fair. You know, Joe's tactics, that should never work. And then as soon as England um, defeated us at the Aviva, it was like, right, let's open up the floodgates here. And we really got hammered for a year. And it didn't matter what we did. Um, it was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is just it. You know, Joe's telling them what to do. Joe's doing this. And actually, the camp itself was, was really good. But the media just piled pressure and pressure. And even when we'd win, it still wasn't good enough. And, and it's amazing how, you know, people go, but that shouldn't matter. But it does because you can't escape it. And it's amazing how short their memories are, aren't they? You know, when, when it's not going well, they sort of hark back to the days when it was going well. And then when suddenly it says, as good a team as you've ever had, it's not good enough. Yeah. Um, but look, that's just the nature of the sport. I've got a quick question for you in terms of your island experiences. Croke Park, Aviva, or the old lands down? <laughs> Which one was your favourite? Uh, it's probably the Aviva. Just those those couple of games at Croke Park were incredible. The problem is we have a couple of have a couple of brilliant memories there and a couple of bad ones. We obviously lost to France and what would have been potentially going for a Grand Slam uh, the following week in Italy. And then we um, we lost to Scotland in a triple crown. The last ever game at Crook Park uh, was a triple crown. And uh, we, um, yeah, that wasn't a particularly good performance. But like the Aviva now has been, uh, people raised eyebrows when it was built, you know, 55,000, you know, it's not big enough. One end of it has about three rows to it. You know, this just won't work. But in terms of, once I got over the initial, the guy sort of went, this is like the old beer marquee at the back of Lansdowne Road. You can actually stand at a bar and keep a wee look out to see when the anthems are finished and come out because it was empty at the start. 
And yeah. people then eventually sort of got used to that and they went, right, you know what, let's get out for the anthem. Let's make it special for the players. And it is an incredible atmosphere to play at now. And yeah, I think it'll be, it's probably my favourite favorite ground to consistently play at. The Millennium well, Stadium at the World Cup in, in 15 when we played France was the loudest I've ever played at. But the Aviva consistently is... Yeah, my, 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 my least favourite stadium is Lansdowne Road because the first time I went there, um, at half, I just noticed everyone booing sort of throughout the match. At half time, I went in and I said, What are they all booing at? And Matt Dawson said, They're booing at you. I was like, What? <laughs> so every time I make a pass or do anything like break or whatever, there's this big boo. And I was looking around, What's going on? I re- and Matt, Matt Dawson said, No, they're booing you. Because obviously, I was born in Ireland. Yeah. Should have, people say I should have played for it. I found that so intimidating. Yeah. They just want to kick hey. shit out of me. But He's uh, a but, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, he did. Final, just final question from me is uh, where, where Ireland are at the moment with the new coach. Um, you know, uh, so what's your take? You know, new captain, new coach, uh, and you know, do you think do you think they're in a good place? Do you think Ireland in a good place? I think they're they're not in a bad place. I think like, obviously you have to go by the last results, which was the England game, and then sort of before that, back to the World Cup, and I know everything's changed, but that's the sort of where they're at in terms of their. There's pressure on their mentality is a little bit. We're not on top of the world like we felt we were in 18. So they're going to have to deal with that a little bit. I feel a wee bit sorry for Faz because most coaches come in at the start of a season and they get the autumn internationals. And when Joe yeah. first came in, like we, we got hammered by Australia before we nearly beat uh, the All Blacks. And, you know, he was able to plan their, and their friendlies. Because I heard a lot of people in the press going, and even in the public saying, oh, you know, let's pick a really young team for the Six Nations. And you're kind of there going, really? Like, let's pick a team that's going to try its best to win it. And the, if the young guy's good enough to come in, don't be afraid to pick him. But don't just pick him because he's 21 or 20. Because if he is a bad Six Nations, they're not going to go, right, we'll give him a break because they're a young team. They're going to hammer them. And, and that 20-year-old may never develop because yeah. you don't know how they're going to react. So I think the Faz didn't get any any friendlies, any autumn internationals to prepare. So he's having to implement stuff with the pressure of performing in the Six Nations. And um, it's a pity they didn't get to finish it. Because I do think, obviously, coming home to play Italy, I think they would have, there would have been a backlash, really good performance. And I felt that, that France were there for the taking. And I know Scotland mm-hmm. did. But I felt that Ireland had a good chance. And if they could yeah. finish the championship, regardless of where they finished, with two good wins, one being in Paris, I think it would have taken a lot of pressure off. And yeah. Like Faz is going to take a little bit of time to implement his. And I suppose the one thing you hope is that everything that Joe's done, you know, it's almost like a feeling now that, oh, you know, if Joe did it, we have to change it because everyone's saying we have to change it. But there's a lot of really good foundations put in and, and it worked really well. And, you know, let keep those foundations, but let Andy add you know, whatever he wants to add to it. I think the game's changed a little bit since the end of the 18. I think it is more about the ball, unstructured ball and play and making sure that you can use that and your forwards have to run onto the ball. Standing still, carrying it now, defences just eat you up. So all of that is going to have to change the ability to play with the ball. But you, you look at the way they're training and from chatting to the boys that they're going to do that night, I don't think Ireland are in a bad place. If you look at Europe, um, which is probably a bit of a benchmark. You know, Leinster are still certainly one of the top two teams in Europe by a bit of a distance, I think those two, and, and then Ulster coming through and, and Munster just... Mm. You've, you've, got, you've got a very good age profile across much of the squad as well with with a good number of caps. And 
I suppose the 2019 hurt can certainly uh, ho hopefully um, you know guide you to go further in the tournament in 2023, just like England in 2015 and 2019. You know, a lot of a lot of those players played in 2015. Just um, one question: there is nine and ten. Connor Murray, Johnny Sexton, legend players achieved so much in their careers. You know, obviously the press are sort of getting after them. Are they going to be around for the next World Cup? But uh, if they're not, say if they're not the starters for next World Cup, we won't delve too deeply into whether they'll keep their form or should be there or shouldn't be there. Who would, uh, at the moment, who would be your nine and ten if they weren't around for the next World Cup? Who are you looking at? Um, yeah, I think if the, if the two boys weren't there, you'd probably be, at the minute, the way John Cooney's playing at Ulster, and we obviously, with it being Ulster, I get to watch him quite a bit. I play yeah. him at Ulster. Um, you know, he definitely is somebody that enjoys uh, what he feels his tails up, and, and it's it's very much that at the minute. And he's riding a crest for a wave, so he's the form. And um, outside of not having Johnny and Connor, you know, at the minute John Cooney's the four nine, and for me, I think that that Ross Byrne, um, or even his brother Harry, I think are the two guys that. Um, I think Joey Carberry has just had those couple of injuries. So, you know, to see how he comes back and, and what he can bring, he's a talented boy. But the two burdens in terms of a of a complete package, they can run a game, they can kick, they have good passing sets. And, you know, they are, are two boys that will be interested if they could get a run of game somewhere, what they could do. Mm. On yeah. that note, on, the, on that note, thanks for your time. I know you're itching to get back on your tra tractor and uh, go and see your cattle. Um, but thanks for thanks for being open and honest. Lovely to talk to you, and uh, congratulations! A great career and enjoy retirement, like myself and Nick. And I think you're going to age a bit better than than maybe me, <laughs> at least than Nick. So good luck with it, and congratulations on a great career. Mate, great thanks. to chat to you, mate, and get out on that golf course as well. I will do. I definitely will. Brilliant. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Rocket with Kieran Bracken and Nick Easter. Thanks to Rory Best for joining us on Rocket. And you can watch all of our interviews, including Ian Botham, Maddie Hall, and many more on YouTube. Just search up Rocket. <laughs>